This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast, and I'm here with Matthew Harris. Matt Harris is here, and before we get into it, and I can't wait to talk to him, we got to do a little bit of business. You know how it is, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, get yourself some of that Total Boat. Total Boat is this great company, TotalBoat.com. They make adhesives, paints, primers, polishing compounds. They started out for boaters and DIYers, and then they realized that the maker community could benefit from their products too. They have great two-part epoxies, which I use for handle scales and uh, laminating and stuff like that. They have UV cure resins. They have pourable epoxies that you can make whatever you, you can do those. <laughs> you can do them tables, those live, those tables, the river tables that people love so much. And you can make anything you want. Actually, uh, one of the more interesting things that people have been making with them is Ben Paik. That's Wobie Design made. Uh, he laminated skateboard decks and made a bicycle out of the skateboard decks using Total Boat. It's only held together with Total Boat. He rode down the street and everything's fine. So if it works for him, it works for me. It works for T- Keith Decent, Derek from Alden, Keith Johnson, uh, Jimmy DeResta. And if you go to TotalBoat.com, you put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get 10% off, 10% off your order uh, of Total Boat. So go get yourself some Total Boat and... Uh, that's for that's for that. Next thing is Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your knives, for your wood. Uh, it's great. It's great stuff. And if you put in promo code uh, uh, Full Blast Ten, you're going to get ten percent off your order of Axe Wax. And I, let me tell you, Axe Wax is great stuff. I just put it on uh, eighteen uh, uh, offset serrated knives. I use it on my G10 because it just it's just a good finish, and, and I really like it a lot. And if you're in the UK, go to UKKnifeSupplies.com, put in promo code Full Blast Ten. You can uh, they're going to give you ten percent off. If you're in Australia, Nordic Edge. Dot com dot au they're going to take full blast 10 and if you're in the eu uh, knife material dot a going to give you 10 percent off with full blast 10 and if you're going to get 10 percent off get a couple pucks uh key uh noah's a good dude and he's got a great facility out in the uh, uh pacific northwest and i'm really proud of, to be involved with him he's a small business doing great things and uh axwax has been dynamite uh next thing is is your website guys your website you should really think about is it's going to be a way to keep you out of the DMs. It's going to make you uh, be more efficient in the shop. And if you don't have to deal with, let's face it, some of the questions you get on the, on the, in the DMs are crazy. Like, hey, how are you? Or I mean, it's just like, why not filter it all out on your website with all the stuff that you're doing, with all the questions that can be answered, with all the weights and sizes and measurements and the way you do business? Get yourself a good website. And if you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, Andreas Kalani, with 20 years of experience in, uh, in design, marketing, he marketed for corporations and design. He's before he even became a knife maker. He's going to make you a beautiful website or he'll fix your existing website. He's designed websites for corporate identities. He's done co- corporate branding, company branding. The guy knows what he's talking about. He's not just, you know, you can just pick it up. He's been doing it for 20 years. Um, and the fact that he can speak your language is, is really, really impressive. Uh, go to akinteractive.com slash full blast. He'll make you a mobile-friendly website you can update with your phone. What's better than that? I, I would definitely reconsider your website. And if you look at guys like Mike Tyree and Charlie Lionheart and Steve Schwarzer, they all used Andreas Kalani's services. And they're all, they did, he made a simple 
website for them that they can upload easy and change when they need to, and it's dynamite. So go get yourself go get yourself a new website or fix your existing website and support a local business who has experience. This isn't just, you know you can plan. And the last thing I want to do is I want to thank Broadback Ironworks. Broadback Ironworks are two guys and a bunch of. I think it's a growing company, to be honest with you. And they're making these beautiful grinders for knife makers, metal workers, sculptors, woodworkers. If you need some ground, Broadback Ironworks grinder is going to do it for you. And their two by seventy two is great. You can put it. You can horizontally, vertically. It's it's a dynamo. It's my number one grinder. I got a number of grinders in the shop, and it is my number one go to grinder. I just got the. A surface grinder and the surface grinder is amazing and actually i just i built some shims and i shimmed out the the, the blade so i could change the scratch profile in the in the in the in the bevel and it's just dynamite so if you go to broadbackironworks.com you'd have to look at some of the d- deals they have with knife talk i think knife talk 100 gets you something on their mega package knife talk 200 gets you something and they got they got sewing machines for leather workers. They got all sorts of stuff. So I want to thank them very much, uh, BroadbeckIronworks.com, and go to BroadbeckIronworks.com and see what they got. You might just you might say to say to me, "Well, Jeff, I got a I got a Beaumont." I'm like, "Okay, you can use their 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 attachments for your Beaumont. You can use their attachments for other t- chassis and stuff like that." And that's very very smart and intuitive. So once again, thanks BroadbeckIronworks.com, and I appreciate your support. My guest today is a fascinating guy, uh, Matt Harris of Matthew underscore Harris underscore studios studio on Instagram is a blacksmith. He's the type of blacksmith I envy. He's also, he's a sculptor and he's a blacksmith and he's got this beautiful shop down in Perrysville, uh, Maryland. Matthew, how are you? I am well. Happy to be here. Thanks. Do you prefer Matt or Matthew? Matt is great. I tell you what. The guys over at Axe and Iron Podcast did a great job with you. Chris and Roy had you on a couple years ago, and they really are last year, and they did a dynamite job with you. And it was really interesting hearing your story. I, I'm fascinated by, I'm, I'm envious. When I say I'm envious, as I used to be in a production shop, and I loved the teamwork aspect of being in the shop. How are things going right now? Um, things are going well. So there are three of us in the shop. And also, if you count me in the office, partly there's three of us in the office. But um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I love a good shop dynamic as well. And I've worked really hard to build that with my team. Matter of fact, when I brought on the two guys who work with me, I told them, I was like, hey, I've worked way too hard to build this thing to be miserable. So, like, we don't have to be the best of friends, and of course, you're going to have a day where you hate it, but for the most part, we have to get along and enjoy working together, because I refuse to be miserable while I'm How working. How <laughs> hard is that? That is hard. I have a guy, David, who's been with me now for a couple months, a few days a week, and, and I was nervous, to be honest with you, because I have been in those situations yeah. where you're working on a, you're working on a project, and you, you're, maybe you're not getting along, and I've been really fortunate. David's been dynamic, and um, I've been in those situations and I, and the hardest part is, and I'm, you tell me, you know, you know better how hard it is to find a good metal worker. Oh, it is hard. And, I, but I guess that's part of my vetting process though. And to my guy's credit, um, they both started off as unpaid apprentices for a short while. 
And that does two things. It just, it vets you out on how serious you are. And then it's like, how do we work together? And it gives time for things to gel. Um, You know, on one hand, you feel bad doing that. But on the other hand, I, you know, apprenticed for three and a half years before I ever was paid in any capacity. So um, what I asked of them is kind of small compared to what I've done myself. Take me back to when you were an apprentice. When you, when you were a kid, here's a question I have for you. Now, I know that your dad was a game warden. Yep. And when I think about a game warden, growing up with your dad's a game warden, and don't laugh, is I always think I used to like the, the old show Flipper. You remember Flipper? Okay. So Flipper yes. was an old, <laughs> is an old black and white TV show where the yep. son was the son. It, it must have been Florida or something like that. And they had it. The father was a game warden. And then the little son had his own boat on the, you know, they had a little dock right by the house. And then the son had a boat and the dad had a boat. Everybody got a boat. And then the son, the dad would go out on some sort of game warden emergency. And then the son, without, he didn't have a shirt on, he had like a pair of sneakers and some shorts. He'd get on his boat. And then his friend was Flipper, the dolphin. And then they'd go on these adventures together. So when, when I heard that your dad was a game warden, I'm immediately going back to I was like, Matt, Matt obviously had a, he was like Flipper. It must have been like Flipper back in the day. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's a great show. I like that as well. Um, but yeah, growing up with my dad as a game warden, that was pretty fascinating. Um, he loved his career. He always said, I get to hunt the hunters. And I, you know, he, he basically viewed it as I you know, get to do the most ultimate form of hunting in a way. Um, I, I didn't, I never want to follow my dad's footsteps with that, but it was definitely interesting growing up, you know, as his son, lots of fascinating stories. Did he ever have any, I mean, would he like, would he, would he, how, I mean, how did, when you're a game warden, what do you just like, somebody says, I heard a gunshot, let's go investigate. I don't, I don't know. What do you do? I mean, what's the game warden do? Oh yeah. So, I mean, it's that, you know, somebody calls up, they heard shooting on their farm, uh, trespassing calls. Oh. Um, his job was to enforce like all of the game laws for the state of Maryland. So you're looking at in our area, um, a lot of fishing, um, you know, better at times, sometimes a year than others. Uh, we have like a rockfish run in the bay. We're, we're like right at the headwaters of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so there's a ton of active activity with that. And then of course, hunting, deer hunting, goose hunting, duck hunting, all that stuff. So he did have a fascinating job in enforcing all those laws, um, tangling with all different kinds of people was, um, was really It must cool. be scary getting, being in a situation where you're going into the woods, knowing that there are people who have guns, but I'm not saying that they're like nefarious, but I mean, anytime you're in a situation in the woods with hunters, you got to be real careful that you don't accidentally get shot. Oh yeah. Well, I'm a hunter myself and like 99% of the hunters out there are awesome people, but yeah, it it was a dangerous job. He was actually um, on a farm one time walking with a federal wildlife agent. They were working together on a case and they had a high speed, um, you know, a rifle round fly right between the two oh of them. Oh my god! And um, never found out who did it, but yeah, it was. And some really hairy. Um, I remember one story you told me. He was 
um, back on a piece of state land, middle of the night by himself, and um, he stopped to jack lighters. That jack lighting is like you're hunting by light for deer, um, which is illegal. And so he stopped these two guys, and um, uh, the one guy was high on drugs. My dad had tangled with him a bunch of times, but the one guy, you know, basically threatened to kill my dad. Oh, my God. You know, my dad's, you know, his backup's probably a half hour away, and he's got, you know, these two guys at gunpoint in the backfield. So it was a dangerous job. <laughs> I had, and still to this day, I have a ton of respect for my dad. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it definitely a cool career. I've had a couple of my friends, one of my friends uh, growing up is actually one of the game wardens in our county now, but it just law enforcement wasn't my yeah. deal. But he loved it. So did yeah, he ever deal with like respect. oyster oyster tr- trespassers or, or like a, yeah. there must have been a lot because I know the Chesapeake Bay is known for I mean one of the biggest yes. places for for oyster. Is there like a oyster oyster theft? What? Oh yeah. So um, that's funny you asked that because he started out his career down on the lower bay around Tillman's Island, which is like, um, back then, especially they spoke like their own dialect. It was like old huh. English and it was just like this little community unto itself. And they hated oh, sure. and like going back to the 1800s, there were actually oyster wars on the Chesapeake Bay where they had like small cannons mounted on the schooners and they would shoot at one another and steal each other. It was just brutal doggy dog kind of economy. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it really was. Because <laughs> I know that like there, I know that like, especially with like in the upper kind of uh, up in like Maine and New Hampshire. Like lobster fishing and lobster traps are mm-hmm. heavily, heavily regulated. And there are people who, you know, maybe they had a couple of drinks and they see a lobster pot and they pull it up and then they, you know, take whatever's there is. I would imagine that there is a lot of that kind of like theft and stuff like that. I would think it'd be pretty kind of common. Yeah. I don't know as much about that. Cause like that was early in his career. I actually wasn't born then. Um, and then by the time he moved up, we're, we are now and where I grew up um, there, there isn't the oyster population here cause we're too far up in the right. Bay, but there was a lot of crabbing. So, Oh yeah, yeah he crabbing. did. Yeah. Oh jeez, He um, must've been busy. Maryland blue crabs. He must've been super busy. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're in New York. You're not, I don't think that the, the guys, the guys are running up and down the Hudson looking for like blue crab poachers because it's like these, these, these little poor bastards have been you know chewing on sewage for so long but i, I would imagine oh god I, I can't imagine what is like I, I would have been to be honest with you i was a i would have been real nervous if my dad was a game warden because we used to growing up in uh new york city but also in the hudson valley and hunting was such a big part of our lives and my old man had a winery and he would let people hunt well there was a lot of shooting going on and it was a little bit nervous you know you made a little bit it was made things nervous and i just couldn't imagine the thought of dealing with having to go up in the woods when there's guys, you know, hunting maybe when they shouldn't be. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, a difficult profession to say the least. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because there's so much like anti cop sentiment out there today. And like, I remember, you know, when my dad was out there enforcing those laws, I was just that little kid who wanted his dad to come home at the end of the day. And, you know, the funny thing is 
a lot of times dad would stop by and, and bring his partners home and, and they would actually eat dinner with us. And, you know, for the most part, 99% of them were awesome people. There was one that my mom actually told my dad, Hey, don't bring him home again. Um, but you know, that's unfortunately what gets glorified on the news nowadays is that one idiot, right. you know, and uh, what concerns me is, you know, we need to continue to support good law enforcement because the more that you don't, you just continually get more bad law enforcement. Right. So I don't mean to get no, too it's fine. No, yeah, you're right. It's, I mean, look, it, every everything is wonderful in the world, except for when people get involved. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's unfortunate, but I mean, it's true. I, I, I think that, I think that, I mean, I'm a huge, I mean, I'm so, you know, I, I, I probably... I'd say I'm 85% vegetarian, but I'm very appreciative of of uh, how hunting has ha- hunting and fishing have uh, have been huge parts of conservation in this country, and mm-hmm. I'm appreciative of law enforcement, especially law enforcement that helps with the with the you know the the production of of uh, you know keeping everything cool with the, I want to, I want to have, I want to make sure that we have some, you know, there are wild animals out there and the, thank God that they're law enforcement and thank God that they're hunters because I think it's, it's all very important, you know? Oh, it is very important. And, um, yeah, that, that's the whole goal of conservation is to really preserve and help manage every species out there. When my dad started, I remember him saying that deer season was, like one week long and you could shoot one deer and goose season was like four months long and you could shoot like, you know, almost unlimited geese. And then by the time he had retired, deer season was like three months long. You could literally shoot 36 deer without any special permits. And then goose season had flipped the other way to where, you know, it was only a couple weeks long and, and very minimal bag limit. So, you know, conservation is important and and all of our natural resources are limited. You know, we have species that have gone extinct because we don't look after and, you know, manage the earth well enough. That's a huge responsibility. Speaking of conservation and that responsibility, it, it, it kind of dovetails into how I feel about you as a blacksmith. Um, and I'm, I'm constantly talking to other blacksmiths especially contemporary blacksmiths who are feel a resounding responsibility for making sure people know that this is still around and i I think that when i look at the work that you do a lot of the people i talk to knife makers and blacksmiths are solo blacksmiths or solo knife makers maybe they learned off youtube maybe they took a couple classes maybe they you know have an anvil at home and then shop at home and then you know some people get to the point where they're able to have a shop and then you know like you who have who do an internship or do and do a, uh, an apprenticeship tell me how you made the decision to do a three-year apprenticeship unpaid what was it about blacksmithing that really made you say all right i'm willing to t- put in the time well the first time i ever hit on hot iron i was at a camp similar to like boy scouts um got the chance to do it for about 15 minutes and loved it. Um, was trying to figure out a way to keep doing it. And um, not long after that, I met Mr. Molenschot, who was originally from Amsterdam, the Netherlands in Holland. And um, 
I asked him if I could apprentice. He originally told me no. And then I talked him into letting me come like on a few Saturdays. And then it just kind of ballooned from there. Um, it was an easy decision to make to apprentice. I didn't, if I'm honest, then I didn't really have the end game of where I am now. I just was hooked on the craft and wanted to learn in any way I could. Um, just completely enamored with the process and the craft itself. Um, where I would go with it, I kind of mapped out a little bit. But later. that's the purest form. I mean, that's the purest form of wanting to learn for the sake of it, not with. And, and I think a lot of times nowadays, especially people do something with something in mind as to, well, I can make money doing this. And I think that it sounds to me like, I know that you're a little bit more like, well, I didn't really have a game plan back there, but I mean, the game plan was, is you want to learn it. And that's the most righteous, righteous reason for doing it. Yeah. And I mean, to that point and to Mr. Mullenshot's credit, it was very traditional. And the focus really was on the craft itself, learning it, executing with excellence, learning forge welding, learning drawing out, all these staples of the craft. And because, you know, his shop was um, was like a part-time retirement shop for him. Um, he actually never did it full-time. Because of that, like, his approach was a little bit more laid back to where it was also a lot of direct focus on teaching me. So, I mean, it was an absolute dream come true to be able to spend all that time with him. You know, somebody who had learned and been trained as a young boy in Amsterdam and then to sit under him uh, to this day is a real honor. One of my prized possessions is my apprenticeship papers that are hanging up in my office. that he gave me once I was done my apprenticeship with him. Do you know what but he did it, in Amsterdam? What kind of work he was doing? Um, it was like in a general blacksmith shop. Um, they did all kinds of different work. They're in the city, so they're doing some architectural things, some repair work. Um, that was during his apprenticeship. I do know um, he was a boy during World War II. After World War II, he actually traveled some. I remember him telling me that he um, even traveled into Germany. He was helping with some rebuilding and repair work. Um, and then he moved here in the early 50s. It was, I was in Amsterdam maybe three or four years, four years ago, four or five years ago. And we were walking across the canals. And on every bridge, there was forging. There was blacksmith forging on the, mm-hmm. the, uh, on the railings. Uh, or the metalwork on the um, on the border of the canals, and it was a lot. It was like it was noticeable. It was to the point where, obviously, because I like metalwork, I'm obviously going to notice it. But it was very, very predominant. Every every canal had almost different different forged, you know, elements to uh, the railings and stuff like that. And it was very, very pronounced. So I would imagine that being in Amsterdam, probably at that time, there was a lot of repairs to the architecture and what's kind of cool is and i wonder now that you're now that you have this metal shop and you're making railings and stuff like that it makes me wonder i know i'm jumping ahead but that's just that's how it is one thing is is i've always wondered is when you're walking around you know europe and you see you know amsterdam or something like that and you're seeing these forgings on on these you know these railings and stuff like that you you think about like the 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 uh 
how important it is, but also the connection between the design and the architecture. As a right. as a working shop where you're doing predominantly predominantly besides sculpture, you're doing railings and you're doing gates and you're doing these beautiful rails. What is the what is your approach when you're dealing with a customer in terms of the direction of the design of the stuff that you're going to build? Well, I am super passionate about design in and of itself, and I'm always looking for the design to be, of course, appropriate to the space um, and complement it in one way or another. Like we've done, for instance, interior railings that just really blended in. We're part of the palette and, you know, we're not like standalone unto themselves. And then like we've done other railings where they asked us, hey, we and their wording on the one was, we want this railing to not look like an architect designed it. We want it to look like it was an artisan design, and we want it to stand out as basically a sculptural centerpiece in this in this staircase. So both of those are beautiful in their own right. Um, the designs are vastly different, but um, I just think, you know, design's the foundation, and then an excellent execution on top of that is, you know, just leads to a successful project. So that's what we've been trying to do over and over and, you know, hone into a, a whole process and system. Basically, but That can be hard when, you know, we, I've been involved with rail with places where we show up and there's not really a designer and the, the, the railings an afterthought. And then they look at what we did and then they think that that's kind of what I want. And then when we install the railing or install like whatever, we're just like, I mean, they paid for it. And I mean, it looks good, but it doesn't look like it. It, it doesn't look right. I, we did one railing in New Jersey, and I don't know what ever. I mean, it was a beautiful railing, but we'd never. I don't. I never. We'd never seen the house. And I know that the the uh, the owner of the company did the you know site the design, and then they did the measurements and stuff like that. And we were putting this railing in. And we're like. You better, we better get out of here. <laughs> we better get out of here when this railing's done because it just, for some reason, it just didn't seem to fit. It was like an afterthought. And that connection between the railing and the, the architecture itself can be so crucial. It can be so crucial. It, it really can. And any thoughtlessness really stands out like a yeah. sore thumb in the final product. And, um, but that's as far as design goes, I've just basically looked at it as, you know, you can go to school for design and I did, you know, some, um, but I think you're always a designer and you're always studying as a designer. Like I, I don't view um, design schooling as not a one and done because design is constantly evolving and changing. So you have to evolve and change with it. And I like, I love studying architectural design. I love studying blown glass yeah. design just, and, and the more that you study design from different angles, I think you're better informed and you arrive at a more mature decision with your designs. So you did your apprenticeship. It was a great experience. You got real, I mean, you got a guy who really wanted to teach you and it was a real great experience. How did you get to the point where you were thinking about taking on railings and taking on these jobs and how you were going to go 
about kind of implementing what you learned into what is now um, Matthew Harris Studios? So, um, I mean, I didn't just jump right out of my apprenticeship um, into my shop, which I covered a little bit in uh, Chris's podcast. Um, but I had worked um, six years at another company called the Coldren Company. Um, they specialized in really high-end hardware. I got the chance to work with a super talented artist um, who's, you know, with hardware, you're constantly filing and doing a ton of bench work. Um, so we're constantly working together to the point that we're designing stuff. And it was really there that I got exposed to the whole world of like high-end architecture and all of that. So that was kind of my introduction more into the business side of things. Um, they were great people. And I honestly had had my fill of hardware yeah. because, you know, you make a hundred pairs of strap hinges. You're, you're pretty good in my opinion. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It just, we made a ton of hardware. It was just, you know, so much. Um, and I wanted to work on a larger scale. So basically the translation was, you know, let me take what I've learned about that market and I want to pursue it with like gates and railings and things like that. So um, I was on one hand too young to start my own shop, but I'm glad that I did when I was young. Cause you know, being young and stupid is sometimes an advantage. And if I had waited until I was quote unquote ready, I don't know that I ever would have done it. So um, like, cause going back to that time period, I had, you know, served my apprenticeship and, and I worked at that shop for like six years. And I, back then blacksmiths were not, you know, as common as they right. are nowadays. So, um, I liked the people I was working for. I actually gave them six months notice. And, um, in that six months, like we found out that Heidi was pregnant with our first child and it was a real decision time. Cause it's like, man, are, you know, are we going to do this? Heidi was still working. Um, but you know, I made the decision to make that jump and have never really looked back through some really good times, really hard times, you know, being self-employed and, and being an artist and, and doing this, um, you know, it has a lot of awesome points, but it's challenging. So the hardware is such a great, a great start in terms of like your mindset, because it's the, it's the, it's the idea of repetition on a small scale. And I think that there's, I think that, I, I think that one of my favorite things to do in fabrication is to do volume of one thing, is to do those kinds of getting your, getting your approach down, getting your, your systems down and figuring out ways to be more efficient. And I don't think that there's any better way to start than that. No, you're absolutely right. And that comment really takes me back to my apprenticeship because Mr. Mullenchat, he would say, anyone can make one thing and do okay. Uh, you know, the real mastery of the craft comes when you can make 12 of the same and forge them and keep consistency and quality and um, to the work. And um, yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the things that almost alarms me about some places that the craft is now on one hand, I'm super happy that it's so accessible to so many more people. Cause there just wasn't that information back when I got into it. But on the other hand, I think sometimes there's not that, um, 
I was talking to another friend about this the other day. There's not that deep respect for it because, you know, oh, I watch this video, I make one, right. I'm good. But my uh, what I love about the craft of blacksmithing is that if you practice it long enough, it will demand respect from you. It's it, That's <laughs> interesting that you say that because I've been talking to a lot of blacksmiths and bladesmiths lately. And we've been talking about the fact that the the and i'm just saying recreational the recreational blacksmith is a new concept you know mm-hmm. i mean it's like you know even 200 years ago you know it wasn't like a way to relax is i'm going to go take a blacksmithing class it just that wasn't a thing i mean you were a, it was a profession it would be like it would be saying this weekend i'm going to do some plumbing to relax i mean it there it's there's not really right. that blacksmithing is as a as a hobby is very new very very new probably under 100 years 100 i would say 100 years is safe to say so with that said being able to have teachers in schools is a new concept too i mean there was like your your situation was you were an apprentice you were working for someone my same thing with me and and the school concept for people to be recreational is so new. And the other thing is, the interesting thing is, it makes me think about the way I learn, the way I teach too, is my, the way I teach is I try to, you know, do, I do only introductory classes and I do it with minimal amount of equipment. So we're not, I'm, my classes don't involve power hammers or presses or it's an anvil and a hammer, no flatters, no set tools, no fullers, no, no help, no strikers. And I always thought that that's the way to get somebody interested in blacksmithing. But the problem is, is it you become when you're by yourself, especially as a young blacksmith, without anyone to work with or striving to get somewhere, you don't get pushed in a way that you're you're comfortable making a hundred of the same thing. And maybe it is you. Maybe you need to have those kind of like group events or these group classes in order for you to be pushed in a way that you you say, I don't like to do this. Well, you should, it's okay not to like it, but you need to learn it mm-hmm. in order to get better. Yeah, no, absolutely. Practice, you know, does make perfect with some things, not with everything, but, you know, with blacksmithing, practice is huge. And like, let me be abundantly clear when I say, um, you know, slightly alarmed with some things like, I honestly, I don't look down on anyone for being a hobbyist blacksmith because I know some insanely talented people who just practice this as a hobby. Like my respect for someone in this craft is really the work that they produce. I could care less if they're full-time or part-time, male or female. Like, you know, it's just, it's what, what is coming off of your anvil and going out your shop doors? What, what does it look like? What kind of quality is it? Um, but yeah, there's, it, it's a blessing, all of the access to information that we have. It's just, there is a disciplined way to go about learning this craft. And, you know, there's, you know, people who just want to start out by making a Damascus sword and I get it. Cause you yeah. know, we were all that kid who wanted to do that, but you know, there's so many disciplines you have to have before you can do that. But again, the the craft demands the respect in the long. Well, but I mean, you you, you know, everyone's stories. You know better than anyone that blacksmithing is, you know, is all discipline because there's no going yeah. back. You know, there's every step is carefully crafted. The greatest part about blacksmithing, and it's changed my life. Like I'm actually in the past ten years, I've been using, you know, just blacksmith mindset in my everyday life. 
you 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 have a game plan and you have this limited amount of time every time you pull that steel out of the fire. Not only the limited amount of time in terms of how hot it is, but like in terms of a knife, you have a life of that of the carbon in the knife. So everything matters and there's no fooling around and there's only going forward and you have to be very you have to think about what you're exactly going to do before you pull it out of the fire and you have to really maintain a complete focus and discipline and I think that that's something that's lost on a lot of people and um i agree with everything you said and one thing is i'll tell you just when you were saying that doing one thing one of my greatest the greatest compliment i ever when i was working for uh this uh at the center for metal arts and john ledford was my kind of my teacher and my upper he was the uh, lead man and i was working under him and he was just he taught me everything we were doing power hammer leaves and i made one power hammer leaf and it almost looked like a maple leaf and it was like he said, he said, this is the best power hammer leaf I've seen in this shop. He even showed it to mm-hmm. Uri Hoff. And he's like, he, you can't make a better power hammer leaf than this. And I, he looked at me and he says, this is the best power hammer leaf I've seen in a long, long time. And I turned to him and I'm like, I couldn't make it again. I wouldn't even know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't even know how to make it again. And it was like a compliment, but at the same time, it was totally lost because I thought, I can't even come, I don't even know what I did. I have no idea what I could never replicate this. Yeah. And it was like this, and it felt like it doesn't even matter that I made, I got lucky once. Doesn't even matter. Yeah. No, that's a fun story. I, my thing is if you had to make that again, you could, your, your journey to replicating that might be long and frustrating depending on how it is, but you could eventually, of get course. There. But at the and, same time, you know, at the same time, at that moment, yeah, it, yeah. it was so like free form and, you know, fooling around and not really yeah. paying attention that it was like, you know, I really didn't have any, I didn't even have any thoughts on how I did it, you know? And it was like very yeah. frustrating because it was like, all right, who gives a shit? You did a great job, but I mean, like, you can't do it again. Or it's going to, like you said, it's going to take you a long time. Yeah. Well, but that's the beauty of forging is there are some of those forgings that you truly could never recreate exactly like that. And those super fun organic forms are one. And then there's like almost the closed eye forging, which I also enjoy. Like I've done some, you know, a lot of production forging. Um, I, I did a job uh, a few years ago where I forged a bunch of finials for another company and had to figure out a way to knock out like 2000 of these finials exactly the same. You know, it's just a different challenge. Both are. That's the, that's the best. The best is the it's the problem solving. The problem solving parts of blacksmithing are the greatest. And it's you have all these little moments and you can see with other different blacksmiths. That's the best part about Instagram and social media is you get a glimpse on how people do things and it's totally different and it's it's terrific because you know some people are using these creative ideas in which to to get up get ahead and it's I that's one of my favorite things of all time. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, everyone's approach to things is a bit different and it is fun with Instagram and, and social media to see how people are attacking different problems and everyone's styles a little different. Like, it's funny you bring up design earlier, but back when I was at the Coldron company, my friend who to this day is a profound friend, Mike Robert, um, he had, was a graduate from the Corcoran Institute of Art in DC. And um, I remember him telling me, I think I first came there when I was about 18, but I remember him telling me then, like, you don't have a style and you, and you don't even really know what your style is. And 
you know, took as a young kid, it, you know, rubbed me the wrong way. But looking back on it, he was really right. And he was like, you know, it really takes years to develop a style. And, you know, it, it's a byproduct of your life experiences and all that. But yeah, different people's approach to the craft is, is awesome. I have so much respect for so many other people out there doing great things. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I wanted to make a connection between some of your work. Yeah, uh, There was a sculpture that you did that's outside the Dansko company. P.S. Shout out to Dansko. I have bought millions of clogs from Dansko when I was a cook, and my mm-hmm. wife has millions of clogs as a, a nurse. We got, I got her yeah, for her. Awesome. And I got her for when we got married. As a wedding gift, I got her snakes. I got a red fake snakeskin Danskos. They were dynamite. <laughs> so when That's I awesome. saw that you made that giant sculpture for Dansko, I was just like, hell yeah, all right. That's awesome. Yeah. The working yeah. man's shoe is Dansko. That's the cooks and nurses all over the world applaud you. Looking at that sculpture and seeing the cascading railing that you did in that house, it, and you know what I'm talking about. It's a, it's the first one on your mm-hmm. website, uh, MatthewHarris.studio. I see this incredible connection between those two sculptures and your and a and a style that's like I know that the same person designed and made this beautiful cascading ra- railing and this big sculpture that is kind of coming out of the earth and it's 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 got you don't say tendrils you would almost say reeds or 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 long leaves and it's everything has this flow they both have this flowing con, this connection the railing is is obviously very light and it's just kind of rolling down the stairs and the sculpture is just kind of rolling up into the sky. And I see, and it's like, there's just, you can't not, it can't not be from the same shop. Yeah. No, there are a lot of correlations between my art, you know, my sculptural work and my architectural work. Um, not always, because again, it sure. depends on appropriateness of design. But those pieces that, you're talking about there, those are two of my favorite for that reason. They're just, you know, totally my style, something that I wanted to design and execute. And um, like a lot of my work, and you can see it in those pieces, deals with like rhythms and movements of life, like, you know, migrating birds, migrating fish, like just this kind of thought behind um, the beauty of forms moving and then kind of capturing that and arresting that in space and that's a little bit of what that sculpture was about and then when i get the opportunity and i get the right customer um i really try to weave that design sense into some of the architectural work again when this space is appropriate well it's once again i love it because when i was starting making sculpture and I was in love with making steel sculpture. I felt the importance of st- the steel being the the ingredient or the or, or the material. But then it was the concept of well, how do you make steel light? How do you make it look light, especially in sculpture? Mm-hmm. So I was fooling around with these steel birds and these having them like kind of perched. And how do you make it look like it's steel? And then they can the, the viewer sees it as steel. But then how do you give it the idea of it being light? And that in and of itself is one of the great 
questions in sculpture of steel sculptures. How do you make steel sculpture not look as massive as it is? And both those look, I mean, the sculpture's rising, clearly. And then the railing mm-hmm. is just cascading down the stairs. And it's this, it's like you said, it's, it's totally capturing this moment. But everything is, you're creating movement in a static object. Right. How right. good is that? But I, yeah, I think that's, you know, kind of one of those fun plays. And, you know, every artist has um, things they want to say in their work. Some of them are, in my opinion, often too personal and aren't, uh, you know, discerned in the final piece by the average viewer. But, you know, for me, a lot of my philosophy with the work is simple. Um, uh, I'm not making political shock art, I'm making sculpture that I love the design of. It's about design, beauty, form, texture, volume, you know, all these things. Um, it's not about, you know, putting, you know, Bill Clinton's head on a stick or something like that, you know, just all all these other uh, forms of art that are out there. Um, But that's the, you know, the beauty of art. Every artist has an individual goal. It's different for everyone. Art can be tough. Yeah, it can. I love your series of work with the, uh, with the lures. Those are super awesome to take a small, um, you know, often underrated form like that and to blow it up giant size it's just that's awesome i appreciate it the lures to me were something that was it started out as just i mean for me i had a class we were i I was in college in ohio and the fishing was dynamite and we were fishing all the time and i sold my first sculpture actually not too dissimilar i was thinking about your horses the first sculpture i ever made was at a black and white life-size cow at a black and white street signs and the the teacher had to help me because the i wanted to get him from the dump and then the dump wouldn't let me and we had to go through the government and the government of knox county ohio and we ended up getting him i had like half the time to make the sculpture i made this giant sculpture and i named a street cow named desire you know and it was not too dissimilar from your lyrical horses that we're going to talk about okay and when I started to do sculpture, for me, it was it, I ended up selling that sculptures to get lit rights to a pond that my friends and I could fish on. So we got 200 bucks, and then we got to go fishing. And if the fishing was good, we wouldn't go to class. Like, if the fishing was on, we all made a pact. If the fishing's on, and you're in the car, and the fishing's on, we're cutting. And so we would constantly buy fishing lures. And, and the funny thing was we were all art students. We're in these, you know, in Ohio, the lure, the lure departments of these stores were just huge. And we were just laughing at the names and the colors. And we were just like, the fish don't care about the names. So I was, we were constantly buying them. And then I made, we had a class where we had to take something small and make it big. And I made a giant Rapala. And then it was like, I tried to do my own thing. And then it was like, it was, they're fun because... Once again, art isn't necessarily just about beauty. beauty. It's, it is saying something. And for yeah. me, the lures were more about the optimism of fishing. You know, fishing is like an allegory for the optimism of the day. You know, you're all fired up in the morning and you're putting your lures together. You're putting your fishing gear together. You don't know if you're going to get skunked. You don't know if it's going to be great or it could be terrible. You never know. But it's kind of the optimism of what could happen. And then the giant lures were more about like, well, what are you going to catch with that? And then it's the mine races. And it's just kind of much more of an optimistic thing. And that's one of the great things about art is, is like, I think we get we get bogged down with, 
the uh, how art can be, you know, as political as it can be, or it can be very thoughtful, or it can be go condescending or it can be you know ugly or it can be pretty or beautiful and it's a tough situation art is a art is one of those things and, and a lot of people don't like art and a lot of it's because they can't kind of understand it and they can't understand right. and they can't just accept it is more along the lines you can't accept the fact that all right this is art this is let's just blood it be art yeah yeah now it stretches some people too far in, in some it ways it does but you know what's interesting about in terms of what's going on now with Instagram and, and how things are being accepted and how things are being seen is crafts are being crafts and skills are being highlighted. And that highlight mm-hmm. helps, you know, helps in making art, you know, make being a, becoming a blacksmith. And then like what Pat Quinn's doing at the center for mental arts is he's, he's taking these, you know, this incredible space and then he's turning into a place for giant sculpture, you know, yeah, and you know, I was talking to last week. I was talking to Matt Parkinson. We were talking about Forge and Fire, and you know, we roll roll our eyes at Forge and Fire. But the crazy thing is, is if it wasn't for Forge and Fire, you wouldn't have forty five people, a record amount of people, testing for the Journeyman Smith test this this coming year for at the ABS, American Blades Society. Right. So all these things that people are being they're sh- being shown, whether you like it or not, it's it's helping out all of our crafts. Yeah, no, it is. It, it, it's funny, you know. You hear a lot of guys like you know talk down about forged and fire, and there's definitely some things I don't like about it, but it's amazing at how much that has promoted the craft of blacksmithing, and and there's some good and bad in it, but. The bottom line is it has gotten the craft in front of millions of eyes that it never would have in another way. And honestly, I look at um, Alex Steele like the same way. Like, you know, I know people who love to badmouth him. I don't have a bad thing to say about Alex Steele. Um, number one, because if you watch a lot of his videos, and, and he's too much of a showman for me in some ways, but at the end of the day, the dude's a talented smith. And he does some excellent projects. Some of them are tomfoolery, and and that's where um, you know some of the purists like to lash out and give him a bad name. Um, but I mean, dude's talent. Uh, I don't care what you say. He's made some great pieces. Um, you know, it, it, but there again, he's gotten the craft in front of. And what's cool about him? He's gotten the craft in front of a much younger audience. Than like let's take a banner. They they never would have gotten it to that audience. So, never, never. You, this is the no. point. And this is the point of guys like Alex Steele and yeah. his YouTube videos. They're doing what a banner just canceled another event. Yeah, you know, and it yeah. sucks. And, and yeah, and I'm not going to badmouth a banner either because all those guys early on who laid that groundwork, we wouldn't be where we are today if if they hadn't sacrificed for in that group, pushed the craft forward as much as they could. You know, and shout out to all those early guys, Pete Renzetti's, the you know, all those guys who um, you know formed it and pushed it forward for years. It's you know, it's amazing. And back to Alex Steele, Alex. I met Alex back a long time ago. He's such a good dude. He's a great guy. And if you, there's one video in particular. I don't know which one it is, but he is talking and forging hard, and it's almost like a backing track. He is so mm-hmm. got he is so talented 
that as he's forging, he's talking out of rhythm of the forging without losing breath. He's a talented guy. And all of a sudden, I was just looking yeah. at him. I was like, how come every... This is talent, right? He, this guy's done this before, and he can do it for a long time. He's very, very good. He's very, very good. Yeah. And I, yeah. it is, it's true. It's, I, You know what? There's a lot going on because, you know, I, I think that ultimately it's all important. And I think that you know, b- before Instagram and social media, I mean, we, I just was, we were having classes and it was like, I didn't know that there were, I, I was a member of a band, but I just, you just didn't see people. You didn't see what people are doing. And now that you see this, you know, these younger people doing it, it's fantastic. And now they're starting to go to classes because they're realizing, mm-hmm. they're realizing, all right, I, I'm just not working out the way I want it to work out and we should be taking classes. And, and what I do is I'm very, very on the board of, go to the New England School of Metalwork, go to the Center for Metal Arts, go to, you know, Adirondack Folk School, go to Penland, go to go to all these places yeah. because it's just the more they do, the better you're going to be. And then those are going to be all people who are going to talk about how great the experiences are in these schools. And, you know, it's it's ultimately good. Yeah. Know that the amount of resources out there for someone who is serious about learning are tremendous. All the places that you just mentioned are all fantastic facilities with super qualified instructors. They're just a fantastic um, resource. I, I mean, back at the end of my apprenticeship, I traveled to the John C. Campbell Folk yep. School and took a um, you know a sword class from Don Fogg. Wow! Um, and and you know, it's just um, yeah, what everything Pat's doing up Central for Metal Arts. I mean, that's awesome. That you know, I mean, what a resource. Um, yeah, it costs you money and time to go to the class. Shoot. I mean, it's, you know, it's just an investment in yourself. It's an investment in your pursuit of this craft. You know, you're crazy to not take advantage of, of these places. Do you ever teach? Um, I have taught some, um, I mean, the most teaching that I've done is with the guys who work for me as apprentices. I, you know, I've taught them the craft very similar to how I learned. I don't think I am the greatest teacher. Um, I tend to be a little bit too loose um, to like really nail down a curriculum. Having said that, though, like the older I get, the more I think I can dial something in. And I can see myself doing that down the road, but I'm just I'm not quite there. I've had a lot of people ask me to teach, and that's one of the reasons why um, we kick our shop doors open once a year and do our annual hammer in. Um, cause I feel like, you know, I can't, um, always teach everyone, but I can do that and, you know, provide an opportunity for people to come together, share knowledge, hang out. Um, and that's kind of my one, um, educational thing. I demonstrate some, I've demonstrated, uh, different events, but not a ton of teaching. That, I hear the hammering, uh, Chris Cash talks about that hammering. It just sounds like, yeah, I know you had, uh, you had Will Stelter down there not too long ago and. It's just the videos were just amazing, and your the floors are made out of brick, and you have these beautiful shops, and it's just everything about it is just like, it just seems very, it seems fantastic. Oh, thank you. We um, yeah, we work hard to make that a, a good event. Um, yes, will will came out last year, um, did a fantastic demo, um, was kind enough to come out from Montana. Um, I've had all different kinds of people demonstrate. And that's one thing, like, I mean, I do mainly sculpture and architecture, but with that event, I just love to promote the craft of blacksmithing in general. So I kind of don't care 
what we're promoting. I just want it to be fun and healthy and alive and a great event. It's a free event. So like, honestly, I've thought about charging just for the sake that I think a lot of people don't, you know, think about it the way they should just cause it's right. free. But like we have some really great people and, um, really great, you know, instruction for, um, coming out, hanging out for the day. So, so back to you, how hard is it? Because I talking to other blacksmiths who are also sculptors, how do you, and you do some of the work that you do is super duper traditional, uh, traditional forging and with the elements that you do for railings and finials and stuff. How is it, do you, what do you, how do you compartmentalize the sculpture and the traditional stuff? Because there are guys like Fred Christ and, uh, you know, the Samuel Yellen style is that idea of this sculptural part, but also this, you know, architectural design. And how do you kind of like rationalize you, you as a sculptor, but also as this, you know, business person, is there two different Matt Harris's? Um, there's not too different, but I mean, there is the, as far as a business goes, there is that side of it where at the end of the day, you do have to make money. I'll say I, in setting up the studio, you go to such great expense and time doing so. I've always been passionate about trying to map out some time outside of our regular schedule to pursue just you know, the pure sculpture that I want to do. And obviously if we're slammed and we have a six month project in the door, I can't do that. But, um, some of my most fun times are the downtimes where I can breathe a little bit. And, um, I'm always pushing my sculptural work ahead as much as possible. I do view, I, I guess there's two halves of the sculptural work that we have done a lot of commission projects that are purely, you know, for a client, there's an end goal there. And then there's my personal work. Um, you know, my personal pieces that I'm moving forward, there's zero outside input with any of that. And that's just me doing that for my therapy and, you know, just my love of the craft and art in general. Um, you know, things I love to do on the side. Um, but yeah, there's a definite balance there. Like, I mean, we did a sculpture for the Camores Company, which is a giant, you know, chemical engineering uh, firm. They built a new um, R&D center um, only a half hour from the studio at the University of Delaware. And they were looking for like this huge molecule sculpture to place in front of that building. And I mean, that project was like, very far removed from some of the traditional forging that you mentioned, because um, it was entirely fabricated. It was entirely made of aluminum. And um, in that project, like you're dealing with so many disciplines that we don't deal with in some of the smaller scale architectural stuff. But um, in years ago, I heard Albert Paley say, you know, everything is a discipline and he is so right about that. And, and I enjoy different projects with completely different challenges than normal. And it's just a matter of learning a new discipline and, and, you know, in a given project kind of trying to master that, like that Camores sculpture, um, there was so much engineering. There was not just structural analysis engineering, but there was weld engineering and then, you know, figuring out the finish and logistics and transportation, just super challenging. And, you know, but a lot of fun also. 
That was a huge departure from your other work because it was, you know, it was, I, when I was looking at it last night, it almost looked like it was, had a mere finish on it. And it was this, you know, it was very technical and it didn't have that lyrical quality that your, your other work had. It was a complete departure in the material and the size, the mass, everything about it. I'm interested that you mentioned Albert Paley because I, uh, a number of years ago, he had a show on, on Park Avenue in the city. And I, dra- and I was dragged. I was in a car. I was the driver for Uri Hoffi and Zevik Gottlieb and John Ledford and my friend Gary from... I had to drive them in. And actually, there's a picture out in the, in the world of Hoffi asleep uh, in, on, in the side. And I took a selfie of it. It looked like he was dead. It looked, it looked like he was dead. <laughs> and we would call it the weekend of Bernie's trip because he was like <laughs> he looked like he is dead in the passenger seat we're driving to see albert paley the albert paley oh, sculpture funny. i see connections between your work and albert paley's that kind of that growth that kind of you know steel is hard to make sculpture with when it's when it's you know when it's formally steel and not just completely transformed do you see a connection with your work and albert paley's work um possibly a little bit and honestly that's because to Albert Paley's credit and the fact that over the years he pursued so many different forms and um, organic, you know, textures and forms in his work that it's hard to not pursue, you know, metal sculpture in an organic sense and not cross paths with him. I, I will say I've worked super hard to not copy him, but I'm definitely inspired. Absolutely. It's hard not to be. Um, but I've worked super hard to not copy him in any way. Um, but yeah, to his credit again, like he's done so much, you know, so many different series of work, um, that yeah, it's, it's in some ways hard to not overlap. I was saying, I was saying more in terms of the, in terms of that one sculpture at Dansko, I was referring to the kind of the growth and the growth from the bottom to the top. I mean, those sculptures that were on Park Avenue were about kind of rising, is rising quality, and it was steel. But I didn't, yeah. I wasn't making a, I wasn't making a comparison that you were saying Matt Harris is like getting a notebook out. Says, Let's make some Albert Bailey sculpture. I wasn't saying that. I was saying that yeah, there were yeah. a lot of connections in terms of the direction and the approach that were that I could see that I could see maybe being you know an influence. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I've uh, always followed his work, and it's funny that you mentioned the uh, Paley on Park Avenue um, because when that show was up, I had become friends with one of the guys. Um, I've messaged, and, and Jeff Jubinville has um, helped me with different things over the year. He was Paley's foreman for years, um, but I'd also, um, you know, come into contact with uh, a guy named Sam uh, Kastner uh, through Facebook who at for that whole series that they did for Park Avenue. Um, he was a project manager on several of those pieces. And my wife surprised me. She arranged an overnight trip to New York City. We grabbed a room. And the next day, we met Sam on Park Avenue. And he gave us like a personal tour down Park Avenue and was like telling us all this stuff about different pieces, how they were made, rigged. It was, it was awesome. That was a great show. Um, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I was yeah. too I was too yeah. arrogant at the time to appreciate it. I I just I don't know. I was like I I couldn't appreciate it that I could now that seeing it was like what was it like fifteen sculptures on the on the on yes. the uh, islands of Park Avenue on one on either side on the other the streets. It was really kind of pretty magnificent. Right. There were all the sculptures were like seventeen to twenty feet tall at least. 
Yeah. No, that that was an awesome show. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I've heard a lot of blacksmiths talk down about him and be like, oh, you know, only his early work was good because that's where he was forging. But, like, not most of those blacksmiths have never done anything over 10 feet. Like, just being yeah. real. And, like, that piece I did for Dansko, it weighed 7,000 pounds. It was 24 feet tall. When you work on that scale, there's a reason to have some fabrication in it. Now, like with that piece of Dansko, there was a ton of forging in it. I mean, there's forgings all up and down the piece, but the main elements were fabricated and I welded some forged pieces on the ends. And like, you know, when, when you get to a certain scale, um, it, it only makes sense to work in a certain way. And I've never bad mouthed him. You know, I, I, I get why he worked that way. It, and his fabricated work is no less in my mind than the forged. Well, we're going to get back to that in a second. But I wanted to make the point that you never saw that dance ghost sculpture standing up until you installed it. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Um, yep. Um, uh, no, that one I did oh. see standing up. I'm I'm sorry. The dance go one I did fabricate um, standing up in front of the studio outside. Um, I actually had a chain hoist hooked up to a tree to lift those main elements up, which each weighed, you know, it was insane how I did that. I would never do that today. Uh, but no, I did another uh, public art piece um, up in the town of Elkton. Um, that was a 17 foot tall sculpture that was entirely fabricated laying down in the studio. And the first time I ever saw that standing up was when the crane lifted it into place. Were you nervous? I mean, obviously, you know, that's the hardest, the hardest part about sculpture is not seeing it in its space. I actually made a sculpture that I thought was big and but when it was installed I was like, oh, I fucked oh, yeah. this thing up. I mean it was the scale was wrong, it was tiny. I couldn't look back. I, when I was building it in in the basement, I couldn't le- go back and look. How hard was it to build a sculpture on its side not knowing what it looks like? That was really tough and that was one of the pieces that forced me to add on to the studio the the new side because that was built in the original half of the studio, which is just an old renovated hay barn. The ceilings are like 10, 12 feet in the center. And that piece was 17 foot tall. So there was, it was impossible to fabricate it, you know, standing up. I wouldn't say I was nervous when I um, saw it lifted up, but yeah, it was definitely, yeah, maybe a little bit, I guess, because, you know, not having seen it stand in the, permanent orientation i kept like literally laying on my side and like staring at it just to get the orientation right like seriously i believe it that's terrifying because like you don't know even when it's standing up the way it's supposed to be you're building it in your shop the way it's supposed to be seen you can look at it from different angles you can look at it from different Mm -hmm. angles you can back up you can go around you can whatever but if it's on its side there's got to be a lot of like well Here's to, here's to hope. I mean, you know, let's hope that it works right. Yeah. Well, we could rotate it because I did have a small bridge crane in that one bay that I built it. So we had the ability to rotate it. But even so, you're not, it's not reading the way that, you know, somebody walking down the street is going to read I'm it. glad you said you were lying down on your side because I had a pictured you had like some <laughs> sort of like thing on the ceiling and you were up on the ceiling and looking down from the ceiling. I figured you had some sort of like, you know, little hoist that you got yourself up on and just kind of stared at it. No, I actually did that <laughs> yeah, with the chain hoist. Absolutely. 
Yep. Hooked, hooked a board up to it, lift myself up. Yeah. Just that, but you know, like that's the beauty of the creative struggle is, you know, when you don't have everything that you need, figuring out ways to do it. And, you know, on the new side of the studio, it's much taller. We have, um, 16 foot ceilings and, and a full bridge crane in that side. But, you know, I didn't have that at that time. It was just a small, you know, little bay, um, 15 foot wide by 24 foot long, you know, and that was the main fabrication. All, bay all one side. sculpture, all filling one sculpt, one sculpture filling the whole place. Yeah. I don't think people realize how, I think the average person doesn't realize how vulnerable an artist is when they're putting something out there that it's means something to them. And I think that that's one of the things that is, it becomes very, it, it's difficult. You're, you're very vulnerable. You're putting something mm-hmm. out there that you haven't really thought about how other people might perceive it. You haven't, might not have figured out every single different aspect of it. And you're kind of like, you're putting something out there and it's a, it's a statement, but you just don't, you're vulnerable and it's, it can be very difficult. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's funny you say that because that entire subject right there is like very dear and near to my heart to the point that I have been working on a TED Talk really centered around that whole subject, really the creative struggle, um, you know, how artists really, that you do put yourself out there. You are bearing your soul when you finally you know, put that piece in front of someone's eye and, um, you know, with criticism's great and it has a place. Um, I think some people criticize sometimes people's work with zero thought to that point that, you know, for a lot of us, you are bearing your soul when you put that work out there. And I would say if you're not bearing your soul, then you're producing something that's maybe commercial or maybe you know, dare I say, in one sense of the word, not even true art, because true art for me comes from your soul. It's it's a passion. It's something that has to be birthed. It's a painting that has to, you know, come to life. It's a sculpture that you know has to be created. Um, again, my my friend Mike Robert, um, he and I, I, I just love to sit down and talk art with him, and, and you know, we have discussions along that line, and. Um, I was actually, I, I got with him over the weekend. We, we, um, we were hanging out over the weekend and actually talking about possibly, um, even beginning a discussion on like art and artist and, um, you know, even like mental health. Um, cause we both have a friend who, you know, is really struggling to some of those means. And it's not something that's really comfortable to talk about. Um, it's not something that is discussed a ton. But, um, you know, art and artist, you know, I'm always careful, no matter how much I may even hate a piece, just to like really cast a lot of judgment on it, because at the end of the day, someone was willing to put it out there. And, um, you know, I don't like a lot of art, but it doesn't mean that I have to, you know, badmouth the artist who made it. The funny thing is, is you don't have to like art. It's it's some things speak to you, some things don't speak to you. Yeah. I, for me, art is more about the conversation I have. My wife is one of my favorite. She's my favorite person. And she takes, and besides my kids, my kid, my wife, we have a good time. My wife takes me to art shows that I might not even want to see. 
And then we'll have these very, very, and she's very, very, she very, very astute about work and color. And she's really become very inspiring to me in terms of how she talks about color and we talk about things together. You can go to a show that you don't like, but the conversation that comes out of it can be very inspiring. And I think that, I think that there's, I think that there is a lot of frivolity in how people see art and stuff like that. And in regards to mental health, of a funny story with the podcast is I, I get I get a lot of people who contact me about the podcast and what it means to them. We're keeping them company in their shop. Most of yeah. these people are alone, yep. and I try to keep them comfortable. Tell a few jokes here and there, and you know, try to be inter- entertaining. And I re and I have had people with real mental health problems reach out to me, and I I, I reached out to this company that that does, you know, they do mental health. Um, They'll help you get in touch with mental health, and it's reasonably priced. And I reached out to them, and I said, "Listen, my, I, I think it would be really important. Mental health is such an important thing, and I'd love it to, you know, maybe do something with you guys so we can kind of promote mental health in this thing." He's, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah." And we had this big long conversation, big long conversation. And you'll be in touch. And then they ghosted me. And yeah. I'm just like, these yeah. m- mental health people just put me on the spot. And I was just like, hi, yeah. mental health people, you can't just leave. You can't leave me in the lurch like that. I mean, it was, which is funny. I think that's funny, to be honest with you. Yeah. But no, like, it, it, it's, it is so critical, though, and, and it is under discussed, to your point. And um, one of the things that, like, honestly made me go down this um, road of, and I'm journaling with, you know, preparing this whole talk, and I'm probably going to present it in a very creative way. It won't be a TED talk, but it will be um, a very crazy. Um, version of a TED talk, but like I have a, a friend, I, and I actually taught you know um, this young man how to play guitar, and um, was in the music scene for many years, and then you know is having some real struggles now. And there's so many layers to it, but like one of them that I've come to even understand with myself is that you know if you're an artist and you're putting yourself out there and you're putting your work out there for people to see. Like I'm very much an introvert and some of us are introverts in an extrovert calling. And if you don't like take the time to recharge your personal batteries and you're constantly just up on the stage pumping out music night after night, you know, it can cause you to self-destruct. And I think there's a lot of different layers with different artists. You see that with some great musicians and bands over the years. I think, you know, some of those people, they, they didn't understand themselves well enough to, to understand that, Hey, I have to take two months and be quiet and by myself to recharge my batteries before I can step on that stage and rock out again. Mm. What's interesting for me personally is my kid is not a sculptor. She's not really, she's not really a painter. She's not really an artist. As coming from a family of artists, she's found the base. Yeah. And she, but we we used to get her to take uh, piano lessons and then to the school she was doing saxophone and, she said she loves music and she says i want is during the middle of pandemic i want to learn to play the bass and we're like okay let's support this and and i'm on my mind i'm like okay you know if she doesn't want the bass and like you know amp i'm sure we could it's not that big of a deal and this is something that she has found and that she practices all night long and we never tell her to knock it off we never have to ask her to practice she schedules her own lessons with this great guy Polly we love and she has found the same thing that I found with blacksmithing this almost like a it's like a, not only a purpose but it's that getting in that flow state 
having the discipline and then learning it with the equipment that you're using and then having these moments of like, it's like when you're forging and you're holding the steel on the anvil and it's hot, but you're holding it and it's firm enough. And when you're hitting it, you're, 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 you're incising it and it feel, you can feel it through the hammer. It's going yeah. up your arm and you know, it's a good hit. You know, it's not a miss hit because you can feel it. Yeah. And she's getting that same thing playing the bass. And it's like a lot of makers, gravitate towards any type of making because they're getting that feeling of that flow state feeling and they're having this degree of personal success with the things that they're doing and it's just it's the best it's the best yeah well that's one of the reasons why i've always loved playing music over the years is because it it is that way it's that creative flow and you just get into it and you're just you know you're lost in that moment and i think the best music is like that there's some you know music in my opinion that's more commercial than others and some of the music that i love the most is just pure music the people creating it were true musicians who could just flow together um if they were a band um you know and and that's a beauty blacksmith things the same way it is a symphony it is music when it when it's done certain way it's funny chris cash you know he's a good friend he's hung out in the shop a bunch of times he looked at me one day and we were working he was like when you're really in the zone you're almost like in a trance and i was like well yeah kind of because i'm just immersed in the process and what's happening and how i'm responding to it and how i'm orchestrating it to a certain degree but both things both blacksmithing and music have a similarity to that it's not just technique there is yeah. this feeling of i mean it's so performative it's there's so mm-hmm. much personality there's so much of yourself that you can't teach I, my kid my kid uh has been playing for a year she's just like awesome and then her teacher w- told this the school uh music director the kid's a bass i got a good basis here you should have her play in the so they did this they the 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 guy who runs the orchestra does does this jazz band he plucks students out like the best ones and he said he said he said to my kid you know Polly says you're bassist you're going to be the bassist for me they just did this jazz performance and it was it. but it wasn't like jazz it was like unchain your heart unchain my heart and they had all it was like R&B and it was like the kids were dynamite and they were so into it and it was like we were all like blown away and That's my kid awesome. was like you know, she already started to dress like she's, you know, from the Allman Brothers. And, you know, she's like, <laughs> she's into it. And, and it was like this moment. I had tears running down my eyes just because it was like yeah. I could see all these kids working together. And the orchestra leader, he was walking around and he's pointing to people and he's like, you do a solo now. And it was like professional. And then all of a sudden he would play the trombone. And it was this incredible moment that that was like I was so grateful to be a part of to to watch it and it was like it couldn't have, I'm not thought the guy considered a chair for an hour and a half but I mean I was like I, I wish it hadn't stopped I wish they did it more often and it was like I was talking to my kid and I was just like I know this feeling that you're having and she's like yeah I don't want to stop and I'm like I don't blame you I don't blame you yeah that is amazing that's it's awesome. tough man it's tough it's tough especially when you're an artist i mean that's what you're looking for is you're looking that flow state you're looking for that kind of figuring out how to keep that going and it, what it, kind of want actually what i was going to talk to you about before is when we were talking about albert paley 
there are a lot of metal workers in general who look at work like Albert Paley or they look at Richard Serra gets the most heat. No, no matter, nobody gets more. No, no, nobody yep. gets beaten up by metal workers more than Richard Serra. He deserves it. Uh, you know what's funny that you say that? I, it's funny <laughs> that you say that because so Richard Serra, if anyone doesn't know, he's known for taking these giant pieces of like two inch thick steel, like, and then putting them through these monstrous rollers, and then he does, or he'll take a plate and put it in the ground, or there are these incredibly giant steel things sculptures and it's it has become i guess he was most famous in the beginning in the early i don't know it was the 70s or 80s he he put this giant like i think it was like a 20 foot by 12 foot steel plate two inches thick in the middle of a street (laughs) <laughs> and, yeah, to block to block students coming in, and then school. it was like yeah. this: like, is this art? Is this art? And <laughs> Sarah has become so. I think I don't think anyone hates Sarah more than metal workers. Uh, metal workers maybe, hate him the most. So. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and so you don't you don't like Richard Sarah? I do, and I don't. I mean, you know, I find. I guess for myself, I don't enjoy super arrogant, self-absorbed <laughs> art, and that's the class that I think he falls into. Having said that, though, some of the best artists are that way, and we probably are all a bit narcissistic and self-centered to oh, degree. Of course. You have to be to be an artist, but I think there's all different levels. He's maybe on the ultimate level. When you can plop a steel plate to, to literally prevent people from walking in and out, and you know that's your art cool that's not mine i I, I don't drive any joy out of making people i i i remember having this argument with another metal worker who said he said to me i could have done that he's i just you know i could have done that and there's and and at the same time and i think i said to him i think my response was but you didn't you know and i mean also like even though some of his work looks very simplistic like he did some of those curve forms and he formed them down um in baltimore at bethlehem steel and sparrow's point and they're quite complex some of the simplest things that you do are also some of the most complex so i i appreciate parts of his work um again like you know not every artist oh yeah love everything they but they he's do, but you have roundly to hated by metal workers roundly i mean it's yeah. like I, I it's funny i would i would hazard to say his best my favorite of his work is giant spirals that are inside right at the right. dia beacon up by me he has uh four giant sculptures inside where they're yeah. pressing against the walls and they're they're completely just like they're making it claustrophobic, and there's so much going on there that's just incredible. I think his best giant sculpture is all indoor sculpture. I think when it's outside, it sucks, but when it's inside, okay. it's a different ball. I'll send you a picture. It's it the the stuff he has at Dia Beacon is just like it changes okay. when it's inside because it's so massive and it's like it's so oppressive to when you're walking through it around it. So, but uh, right, well. You you say he's hated by metal workers, but I mean to that point, that's one of the big clash in blacksmith. Like not every metal worker, not every blacksmith is also an right. artist. That's right. You know, and you make some people mad by saying that, but that's just a flat out truth. And so that's why, you know, like within metalworking, within blacksmithing, within artists, there's all these clashes because, you know, people have what they like and what they don't like and you know. They don't always get along, you I, know. You, you see that some with blacksmith. I think he accidentally you know? squished someone in them rollers too. 
I think some. Yes. I think so, unfortunately, yeah. I think that was no guy did die with one of his pieces. Yeah. Yep. Um, but you know that is interesting. I think that art and craft. It's hard. It's hard for people to kind of like just accept both of them together. I, I know what you're talking about. I think that there are a lot of people yeah. who say, "Well, I could have. I could have welded better than that." Well, that's one thing I always enjoyed about Mr. Mullenshot and even all of his family from Holland. It, you know, the European culture is so much different in here. There's a much more um, wider acceptance and ingrination of art and even some better education, um, you know, as to the appreciation of art. It's, it's, it's a different vibe in Europe than it is here. And... Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I love like the metal design books, the metal design international books. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of great um, European art. That brings me to what you're working on now, or at least what I've seen now. You're doing a lot more, well, a lot more. You did some repose work with that giant Indian sculpture um, that's a bit amazing, and now you're doing these repose uh, flowers. Yeah, so that's... Um, some French style work with uh, like traditional French steak repose in it. Um, that's a sample that we're working on for really um, high end railing. Um, but again, like I enjoy that it's a different, different discipline. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just sculpture on a microscopic level versus like some of the larger scale things that we've done. Those rosette type sculpt, those rosette type elements with um, blacksmithing stuff always, it's just, just beautiful contrast to, to forged elements. It's, it's always like that uh, it pops and, it, and it's the, it's that different mass. It's that contrasting forms and the different colors and stuff like that. I think it's great. Right. Yep. My wife was, um, just gold leafing some of those this afternoon. So that all those little repose um, pieces we made, they're getting gold leaf for that sample. Wow. So, so what's that? What, I'm, my fingers are crossed that it's going to happen. So what's the, uh, oh, by the way, I, I didn't realize that behind you is a picture of the railing that I was thinking about. I wasn't, I, I didn't okay. even realize that all of a sudden I was just like, that looks familiar. And I said, what is he in the house? Is he recording in the house where that sculpture, that railing is, is, is installed? I'm like, this can't be. Just- yeah. No, I'm in the studio. I'm in actually our showroom. That picture's sitting on the floor because we just repainted it, and we're in the process of like redoing our sample wall and all that stuff. So it's a wreck in here, but yeah, that is that real. What's the next? So, so, so this for the for the rosette thing. If it happens, what kind of railing? What are, what are you looking at for as a project? Um, it's an interior railing, like very classical and and French design for that project. Um, I have a lot of really cool projects in the pipeline. Um, a really um, sculptural railing that's like double sided and curves and cascades down the stair. And um, yeah, so a lot of exciting things in the pipeline. What's your favorite part of the project? I, in my mind, I always think of I remember the days where the boss would go to take measurements and then he'd bring it back. And I always loved being part of the team where somebody would be working on pickets. One, one guy would figure out the, you know, the jigs for the pickets. And then, and then he'd show me how to make the for, forge, the pickets. And then we'd do, I'd stand in front of the f- anvil for a week straight or, you know, the power hammers a week straight making pickets. I love doing that. Mm-hmm. And then we'd start to assemble. And what's your favorite part of the project? Oh, definitely when it's all installed and you're just standing there looking at it completed. So, um, yeah, everything leads up to that point because, you know, 
there's so many components to any given project and they all have to come together and be managed well um, in order for that final piece to be a success. Um, yeah. And we all enjoy that. And that that's one of the biggest things I enjoy about the larger scale work that I'm doing versus hardware. Like when I work for the hardware company, it's like you make it, you send it out the door, you never see it installed. We install like 95% of what we make. So that's very rewarding. And then even while you're installing it, sometimes you have interaction with either the, the, the homeowner who owns the house or um, if it's a public art piece, you'll have immediate interaction with the public, you know, good or bad. That's just the fun of it. I, I love, um, uh, you know, when it's complete and you're standing back enjoying that work. It's very rewarding. Do you get anxious for an installation? Um, yeah, if I'm honest, yeah, on some. Like that sculpture we did for Camors, um, you know, that was even just the logistic side of that was so difficult. So. We fabricate the entire piece here in the studio. Um, it then gets transported from here to a shop in New Jersey that did that um, beautiful, you know, highly reflective chrome finish on it. And then, um, you know, it gets transported from that shop out to site in Delaware. Um, like that installation, you know, even that insulation was technically difficult because the guy who did the finish, he didn't want us wrenching on the finish yeah. in order to lift the piece. So we had to make a cart to transport that piece without actually holding on the piece a very minimal amount, <sighs> transport it. And then that same cart was used to, um, we hooked a crane to the steel cart, lifted it up, stood it up 90 degrees upright like it would be. And then using like all these padded straps and um, I actually, the, the industrial riggers let me rig that myself. Um, and then, you know, we're lifting it with a crane out of that steel cradle, swinging it oh. over and it has to slide perfectly down into, you know, a steel base that's already been clad with granite. So yeah, that was, um, when that job was over and that piece slid down into that, like everyone on my team saw me, I was just like, um, I didn't care who was around. I was just like, you know, rejoicing basically. Cause it, it, there was a lot, there was so much that could have gone wrong to get to that moment. And, and when it, everything went right, you know, that's the thing. I, I hated installing, installing anything. <laughs> I hated it. That's why I love knife making is I just put it in the mail and then they, people use it installations used to get everything that i always i would be very superstitious i would be like Mm -hmm. because i was also in charge of all the tools all the you know the redundancy screws and what if you break this and if something's broke you know so we don't have enough you know quarter 20 taps who's responsible i i would not be able to sleep at night for on the night before installation night, if did I spend enough time? Did I did I have enough of these? Or do we have enough touch ups? This or do what about this? And do we have the one time we showed up and then we didn't have enough MIG wire, and they're all looking yeah. at me, and I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't measure the spool, ladies and gentlemen. I didn't expect us to be doing all this welding in this on this job. I yeah. I would say that that would be my my most. I never liked it at all. Yeah, insulations are tough, and and when I say the end of insulation is my most favorite part, I mean that because yeah, insulations are not always my most favorite part. They're usually the most stressful part. It's the make or break time. You know, you're fitting, 
you, you know, sometimes you're dealing with unforeseen circumstances on site that you didn't know were there. Um, and over the years, we've gotten to the point where post-install, we actually have a review meeting about the install and like what went right, what went wrong, how can we be better? So like, you know, we have tool lists that get checked off before we go on site. Um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, a challenge with installations, but, um, yeah, we're constantly lo- looking to improve that. Well, that seems like that's your whole thing is, is you are growing as a blacksmith, as a business owner, as a sculptor, figuring out ways in which to be more efficient. What's next for Matthew Harris studios? Oh man. Um, probably a lot more of the same, just, uh, I enjoy everything that we are doing currently. I enjoy kind of this co-pursuit of sculpture and architecture and trying to mesh them together as much as possible. Um, We are growing a little bit as a business. I probably need to add like one or two more people on in the coming, um, uh, the coming year or so. Um, And I don't get, I don't get me wrong. I don't want to, um, like I have a limit and, and even a, a, an outright goal with that. Cause I'm not looking to, you know, be, become some huge business for me. It's always like a per, I'm trying to pursue excellence. And so that means constantly evolving and changing, like, you know, just being very transparent about six, seven years ago. Um, I had a couple jobs that didn't go the way that I wanted them to go. So you take a hard look at, Hey, how can we make it better? Um, the answer there was to bring my wife on as like the studio manager. And, um, then recently this past year, we, we brought on a bookkeeper just to keep track of that. So it's, you're constantly making micro adjustments and changes to try and get better. Um, I'm, I'm at the point where it's like to drop back and try to do work by myself would almost be impossible. Um, I don't want to grow to become some huge company where I don't have a hand in the work. So, and, you know, if you follow my work, I am very passionate about keeping blacksmithing in as much of the work as possible. And I'm really proud of how much we've able to do that because a lot of shops eventually just evolved to become fab shops, but we've kind of held the line with that and, and just really try to create this beautiful mesh of handcraft, you know, with some fabrication and, and other means, but, um, yeah, more sculpture and more architectural work. I mean, that's kind of the future. Um, I also have a product line that I've been working on on the side. Um, we just launched a new lamp with that. And, and just, you know, and the heart behind that was to try to get some of the work to a broader audience, you know, because with, you know, some of these railings that we do, you know, it's a very select few people who can afford right. that. And, you know, I enjoy that work, but on the other hand, I'm like, man, I, you know, it'd be cool if, if uh, you know, if people appreciate the work to make it accessible to more. So we launched this lamp and um, the pre-sale, like we had it down to like 300 bucks for, you know, a lamp that has some fabricated elements, but it has a lot of forging in it. And it's a beautiful piece, you know? So, um, yeah, that that's also kind of a sideline pursuit. And where can you get that lamp? On my website. You can, and you're still yeah. taking pre-orders? Um, no, the pre-orders were done. Um, it's the, the final retail price is a little bit above 400 bucks, but even so, 
like no apologies for that. No. that it's worth every, every penny of it. And, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful light and, um, yeah, I, I've, you know, kind of have those three things going and that, that's why we actually rebranded the studio a couple years back. It used to be Harris metalsmith studio, which, you know, it's kind of artsy, but it didn't communicate everything that we do, but we're doing sculpture and architecture and I do have a home line. So it was easier to just market that under my name, you know, Matthew Harris, Matt Harris, ladies and gentlemen, go to MatthewHarris.studio. Check out his, all the beautiful work, the sculptures that he's been doing, the railings, the gates. This is important stuff. This is great stuff down in Perryville, Maryland at, Matthew underscore Harris underscore studio. Matt Harris, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm a very, I'm a fan of everything you do. And I appreciate the confluence between your work as a sculptor, as a modern day blacksmith, as a business owner. And it's my honor to have you here. Hey, it it has been a real privilege to be here. And I can't thank you enough. It's been a fun conversation. We'll do it again for sure. Everybody, listen, go follow Matt on Instagram. Go check out what he's doing. And we will see you next week. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.